Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So lovely to be here, and thank you very much for inviting me, Hannah. As Hannah said, we only recently met, having tracked each other over the years. <laughs> and I am going to just tell you about why the arts should be at CERN, <laughs> and uh, along with everything else, and what a curator can bring to CERN in terms of arts engagement. That was my brief. Um, as Hannah said, in 2008-9, I won this uh, prize. And they said, you can go anywhere you like in the world. And um, I thought, well, the most exciting places in the world are the ones which are at the cutting edge of knowledge, which push frontiers further. And I thought, there's nowhere on the planet I'd rather go than CERN. And I turned down lots of other opportunities for attachments in arts organisations. And I deliberately wanted to go where science and technology was key, because I believe that ideas are the nexus which hold us all together um, and are the springboards of the imagination for science, the arts, right across culture. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about CERN so you can see why I was so excited. You probably all know about it. Um, it was founded just after the Second World War as part of the Atoms for Peace project. And that circle is the Large Hadron Collider uh, representation of it. And it spans two countries, Switzerland and France. And the land is given for free for the Large Hadron Collider to be dug into the earth. And one of the great engineers who actually helped build the LHC did the circle line. So the kind of connections between the UK. Uh, it's an extraordinary organisation, one of the most international I've ever worked at, 100 different countries, 680 different institutions, with 12, actually it's 12,500 scientists, engineers working remotely as well as locally. So it's 5,000 working locally and the rest are distributed. Uh, the great joke is you can even drive the LHC from your computer in India. So everything is networked in on an extraordinary level. There it is again, the main site, uh, just below the Jura Mountains. It's about uh, seven kilometers outside Geneva. And on the big circle, you have four extraordinary uh, detectors uh, at four different points. Um, two of them working, looking for the same thing. So Atlas and CMS were looking for the Higgs boson together. And they are act as double blind checks on each other. And the other two look at very different things like matter and antimatter and how matter basically won out in the battle of antimatter uh, when the universe was born. Um, and the other one looks at even further back, Alice, at the primordial cosmic plasma as it happened. And as you know, these detectors are extraordinary because they basically take snapshots of the particles as they collide right in their centre and go hurtling around the Large Hadron Collider just under the speed of light. So it, in, it is the fastest racetrack on the planet, as they call it, 27 kilometres. And people get around on those. <laughs> and those are the magnets. But also people go around on bicycles. That's very important. Not just motorised. <laughs> bicycles are key. Um, and so it's probably as half a, a magnet is probably... Yeah, it would end there to there. That's how wide a magnet is. And they come from all over the world, these magnets. And they've done incredible journeys. Um, it's also the emptiest place, space in the solar system because um, the protons are held in a vacuum as they are guided around, steered around. 
um, and it's also one of the coldest places in the universe, minus 271 degrees. I've often thought you could have an incredible cry. I mean, it has one of the most incredible cryogenic chambers there, so um, it could be a great scene for a horror film. Uh, it also is one of the hottest spots in the galaxy um, because when the protons collide, it's actually the, the heat, the generation, is a 1,000 million times hotter than the heart of the sun, which is incredible. Uh, but these detectors are absolutely extraordinary. If you think how many times your kettle breaks down <laughs> or your washing machine or your vacuum, and then you look at that and the trillions of connections there are in that, and each of those detectors are prototypes. They have not been built before. They're all working prototypes. And that's also something I find really super exciting. I mean, it's incredible. Prototypes which very rarely break down and have trillions of connections. So that's the Atlas detector. And more about that later. The mission of CERN is to push back the frontiers of knowledge, develop new technologies for accelerators and detectors, train engineers of tomorrow, and unite people from different countries and cultures. Um, and the word knowledge is absolutely key there. Knowledge should encompass the arts, because for me, arts create a different form of knowledge, which is all to do with the senses, uh, the emotions, intuition. And so my argument with the Director General of CERN was, hang on, you've got most of knowledge, but you don't have all of knowledge, um, and you need to bring in these other forms of knowledge. Equally, you can't call yourself a great cultural force in the 21st century just by being science and technology, Culture is the expression of what it is to be human, so you need to have art, science, and technology, because then you've got all the forms of knowledge together, and you can show leadership in doing that. So that's a kind of clue as to my argument as to why the art should be there. Um, and, yeah, so I was determined, really, to make these kind of creative collisions. And as you know, all the ideas of science are incredible, like particle physics for particular which is my passion. So, for example, you think you're sitting on solid chairs, but um, actually 95% of what you're sitting on has got holes um, and it's empty and you could be shooting down to the centre of the earth if there weren't other forces actually holding you up. And all those things are springboards of the imagination, just like, for example, the void. The void is never really a void. It's very, very busy. There are always things happening in it. So for me, arts and science are together because they're all about creativity, all of them, and the human spirit, and that quest to discover and explore. And my passion really is for particle physics in particular. And I really feel that uh, particle physicists are almost twin souls, really, uh, because particle physicists, um, you have the experimentalists who test what the theorists do. Um, theorists think beyond the paradigm in abstract and beyond, working with a higher language of maths, and experimentalists then test it out. Um, so, and for me, that's exactly what an artist does. That's the practice of an artist. You're a theorist and an experimentalist as well. So the allegiance has always been there, particularly within physics. Um, for example, Fabiola Ginotti is then now the new um, director general of CERN, and she had to choose between being a classical musician. She was very much a classical musician at concert level, uh, solo concert level, and she had to choose between the two, but she still practices every day. Um, but there's that alliance. 
Equally, that's, there's the alliance if you look at the 20th century. This is like a massive gallop, sorry. <laughs> it's going to be like condensed gallop of a lot of stuff. Um, so if you look at the whole history of modernism um, and how that was influenced by Heisenberg and notions of uncertainty, but also Einstein and the notion of the observed and the observer, and how our notions of subjectivity were thrown up into the kind of planet, really, um, Modernism was so highly influenced by particle physics um, that, because like, meme, it, like memes, it went through our culture. But equally, it's been a two-way race. So you look at Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, um, Three Quarks for Mr. Mark in Finnegan's Wake. Um, the extraordinary Murray Gelman, the physicist, went, mm, I want a word for fundamental particle. I'm going to choose quark. And he got that from... Um, Finnegan's Wake, but obviously Quark has a longer history than that as well. So another argument for Arts at CERN is when I went there, um, uh, I started collating all the artists who'd gone through. Um, so this was in 2009 when I was there. So nobody had quite realised um, who everybody really was and that there was this massive legacy. They obviously knew about Tom Hanks, uh, but they didn't really realise that, for example, they had had the Black Eyed Peas going through. They hadn't realised that. They hadn't realised Andrew Gursky. Nobody had really pulled it all together. And particle physics was and does have this incredible kind of um, influence on our culture because it is all about the universe, why and how we're here, <laughs> which is one of the key questions. Um, but there has always been arts at CERN, uh, arts happening, always lots of engagement. So, for example, Ken McMullen, the filmmaker, did an extraordinary um, program called Signatures of the Invisible in 2000, um, which I looked at as part of my study to build on what had happened there. That was an incredible program where he brought 11 artists who he handpicked himself to CERN to engage with what was happening at CERN. And equally, as I've shown with the slide, there have been artists going in and out of CERN like crazy. Um, so very random. People found their way in different ways. Um, and um, so it's always been happening. So but I, when I went for my three months of attachment, I did a feasibility study one of those boring things, but kind of necessary things. For three months, I sat down and looked at what had happened on the programs, and I discovered that scientists wanted engagement, understanding, consistency, and contact, and artists wanted structure, guidance, producer links. Why do I know this? So, for example, world-famous artist goes on the signatures of Invisible Program, is lef left there on his own, and makes a piece, which I say to him, oh, why was that piece of sculpture you created so terrible? Because it wasn't your best piece. And he said, that's because nobody was there to support me. Nobody was there to act as, an act as a point of translation. So this was my protest, basically, about it. So I went, right, OK. But I also discovered artists felt really um, cheated, because um, uh, no, scientists felt really cheated, because artists would come in, pick their brains and then go away. And it's like, hang on a minute, where were you? You were here and now you've gone. And um, they wanted people to be part of their community because these are scientists who work in collaborations, over 3,000 people all together, working in consensus. So when an artist comes in, steals their ideas and goes away, they're like, hang on, we want engagement, we want human engagement. 
So those are kind of arguments, really, about why a curator is kind of needed to be those kind of bridge between those things to give consistency and engagement, but also act as a bridge. So Arts at Sun has three had three strands which I designed and founded: uh, a residency program, uh, a research program, and a visiting artist program. I, I always make the distinction between residencies as being three months minimum. Uh, because I believe it's deep time which will really change your thinking and your ideas about the world. Research, one month. I think you can only... That won't change you fundamentally in terms of your practice. And visiting artists come for one to two days. And my successor, Monica Bello, has created a new strand called Guest Artists um, as well. So the idea was to bring arts and science on the same level within the institution, to create a two-way knowledge and inspiration exchange so that there was free flow between them to create equal exchange and respect and value. And, of course, I founded a board, which I brought in as well, uh, of high-level people in the arts. So, for example, Beatrix Ruth, who's now at the Stedelijke Museum. She was one of the original uh, founding members of the board, um, and Serge Dorney from the Leon Opera House, as well as Michael Dozer, who was, is one of the world's leading experts on antimatter. So, and there are creative patrons as well, like Jacques Herzog, who very much talks about particle physics being inspirational to his architectural practice. Um, all those patrons are people who've come to CERN and been inspired by it. So creative collision between the arts and science was actually, the whole programme was announced because I got hired in the end, because I persuaded them that there was actually a need for this. So, um, yeah, so I presented my findings of the feasibility study, which, which was three months, and then they hired me. And they said, Ariane, there are two catches, though, about this. One, we want you to do it, and B, we're not going to fund it. So um, more about that later. I'll just leave that hanging in the air because these things don't happen without funding. Um, so in 2010, I arrived, and a year later, I announced um, Collide at Sun having fundraised for it to happen, and Partnership brokered it for a year. Uh, so Partnership brokered with Ars Electronica Linz and also the city and canton of Geneva um, for it to happen. And we did a massive, we announced it at um, the Ars Electronica Festival uh, in, 20, in 2011 when we announced the open call for it happening. And the Ars Electronica Festival actually concentrated totally on CERN and talked about CERN. Was CERN a great way of going forward? So this for me was a very strategic way of putting the program on, a map, on the map and making it happen. And the first artist who came was this guy. <laughs> so, so it was Ulysses von Bismarck, who you may know his work through the... Um, when he first started, that is a very famous piece which uh, won a prize. It's called The Image Fulgurator. So it's a piece of kit where he goes to press conferences and points it at the camera of the press people. They go home, expose their picture, and, oh, my God, there's... Chairman Mao with a dove of peace superimposed on top of him. Or, so that's what it does. It's superimposed. And so deliberate intervention is into what and how and why the media acts the way it does. 
um, and Julius won the competition in open competition. So the Clyde program is won through open competition, and there were 400 entries that year. This year, there were 1,000 entries for Collide, actually. So it's ramping up. So it's an open call. And that was very super important, again, because one of the feasibility studies findings was the scientists said, oh, you become an artist through who you know, not what you do. I went, no, 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 it's, 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 it's a bit more than that. And they went, no, 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 but there's no such thing as quality measurement. And I said, yeah, there is. And it's to do with the history of art, for example. You have to understand where somebody's placed and where they are. So it was really super important that I didn't go in as a curator and go, I'm picking this artist and you're coming here. It was really important that I demonstrated and created a cultural understanding through actually... Um, behaving and doing um, and by example. So we, did, we had juries with artists and scientists on the same jury together. And the Clyde at CERN, we had two artists in the first year and the other one was Gilles Gerbin who won the City Prize. So I had an international prize and a City Prize which still exists to this day. And one of the fundamental things was I matched um, Julius with um, a scientist. Now, this happens when you get selected as an artist there. What I felt was really important was that the artist came three months before they actually started their residency, and they come and they have um, a week's worth of full immersion in physics. <laughs> so they're basically in the lab learning about physics like crazy. And at the same time, I'm actually ex doing an anthropological study, which is really very exciting, where I'm looking at the scientists and the artists interacting and trying to work out who would work together well and take each other further, uh, because I match, and that still continues to this day. Um, the, art, the, scient the artist is always matched with a scientist who's their inspiration partner. And again, the language is very much about quality um, and it's about two people getting things from each other in an equal way um, and you can see those two are very playful very open very engaged and they're still working together to this day um, what was also important about this program was I deliberately made it so with this this kind of statement nothing was going to be produced nothing was going to be produced um, that was a deliberate, super deliberate political statement because I believe we've lost trust in artists um, because I believe very, very strongly that we've become too product and applied orientated in our world and there should be some openness for experimentation and discovery. And also because I damn well knew that if you get the curation right, of course, things will happen and things will happen. Um, and, of course, people will produce and make something. Get the curation right, which is the kind of invisible mending which every cur curator does, where you're kind of holding the space and creating understandings, but also sort of creating disruptions sometimes between people so that the creative process happens and something will happen. So, for example, Julius um, actually created something within, oh, actually about... Um, mm, three months after he left, he created something called Versuchunter Kreisen, which is actually four lamps, but you can only see three, and they're all turning 68 times, and they're out of sync, um, and then they come together in the 68th time, and they're driven by data. 
But what also happened very much was there was a kind of collision between him and the first uh, artist, uh, the first choreographer, Gilles Jobin. And Gilles Jobin created a piece two years after he was at CERN. Um, and again, I was very much, I knew that you should never, ever say, a piece will be created in one month. Um, so two years afterwards, he created a piece called Quantum, uh, which was well premiered at CERN. And it became the winner of the Hermes Foundation Award. Um, and one of the crucial things also was that it linked with Julius's lamps, um, because he fell in love with the lamps and said, I want those lamps, they're going to be part of my dance. Um, and the wonderful thing also is he did that intuitively without actually knowing that Julius actually creates art through dancing. <laughs> he will go away and dance for 12 hours on all the time, and he had always thought of those lamps being part of dance. He had, so Gilles had no idea. So those kind of intuitive collisions which happen, again, another form of knowledge, knowledge-making is super important. And I point to Quantum and say, hey, guys, I said there'd be no product. Voila! Because I know, I know if you get the curat curatorial process right, you select the right artist mixing with the right scientists, you blend them together, something will happen. And also you do have the name of CERN, and you know that with that will come funding of some kind, some support. So to be honest about that, there's that also hidden cachet. But we, um, CERN, did not provide any of the money for the production of anything. So it was all about the creative process, creating a fundamental research laboratory with, for artists with scientists at the world's leading fundamental laboratory. And that's a very key thing, again, about matching the missions of an organization with, um, yeah, with what you're doing. So Quantum's on the world's most endless world tour. <laughs> That's all I can say. I had an email from uh, Gilles yesterday. He's in St. Petersburg now with Quantum. And um, he's off to Argentina um, in about two months' time. Um, so it's been really picked up as part of the zeitgeist. Um, and another person who will interest you is Ryoji Akida, who was the last artist I worked with in 2014 who actually made this piece before he came on the uh, Clyde Stone residency because he was so inspired by the visit he had done six months previously that he created supersymmetry before he even came and then afterwards created a massive piece which has been showing at, was shown at Karlsruhe, which you will see. Um, um, this piece, which you can barely see because it hasn't come out, is a piece which came out of the latest artists, which is driven by data on data from black holes. Um, it's actually lots a web of Arduinos. If you imagine a web of Arduinos above your head with pulsing lights and sending out sounds, which are from data from uh, black holes. And it's called Horizon Irresolu, and it was showcased at CERN about three, three months ago. That's an extraordinary piece which came out. It's another strand which works with different art forms and is the research strand. Um, and that has been ongoing at the moment. Um, and I deliberately started that actually in 2013 because I knew I was leaving CERN and also the Director General was staying. Now, the Director General and I worked very, very closely together and be damned if this arts program was going to be stopped by a new director general coming in. So I created an arts strand, very, very much playing into the strength of CERN, 
looking at um, uh, making partnerships with two different countries out of the 100 countries around the world every year. So that would mean this program could continue for 50 years and be funded, uh, working with the different cultural ministries and foundations. Um, before I went, I signed off on all of them and all the contracts um, so the program couldn't be killed because <laughs> it was very strategic. But also it was very um, necessary as well because there'd been a big hunger for the program from all the countries, but they didn't want to fund an international prize. So the funding from the international prize I got from private sponsors, from private individuals, actually art collectors. They were all from art collectors and one science scientist, actually. Um, and they funded the big international program, but individual countries didn't want to. So I, I created something out of that necessity. Uh, these two were there very, very recently. They're from Taiwan. It was a joint, uh, a joint residency between a dancer and a data artist. Um, and uh, we will see what happens with that project, dot, dot, dot. They've only been there, so I suspect, two, three years down the line. Though I think Paling will do something on her own, actually. So she's an extraordinary choreographer who works um, already very much with data um, and is quite extraordinary. Um, the other strand, I'm just going to mention it, visiting artists, just one day, if you create it possibly, it positively and in, a, in the right way can make a difference. So Iris van Herpen, one of the things I set myself before I left again was the challenge of let's do something really special and get CERN on the catwalks of Paris. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody thinks of uh, physicists as being, like, um, trendy. <laughs> they, uh, they come in different camps. And I thought, why don't we go for one of the world's most exciting um, uh, fashion designers, uh, who is Iris van Herpen, and who works very closely with the architect Philip Beasley. So they came for a day, and out of that they created this collection, Magnetic Motions, which has just won a massive European prize two weeks ago, actually, the first Starts Prize. Um, and um, it was totally founded on her looking at the, being inspired by the patterns of the, detect the magnetism from the detectors as well as the magnetism from the Earth's core. And that is uh, 200,000 times stronger than the magnetism of the Earth is the strength of the magnets of the uh, detectors. And she was inspired by that and created this collection from that. Um, and as she also said, as she went round, she was very, very excited by it because she said, oh, my God, it's so futuristic. But the weird thing about CERN is it's very futuristic. You have these incredible machines, but they're all put together by hand. And that's very beautiful, that kind of contradiction. So there's this incredible craftsmanship, as we all know, about technology when it's working um, with humans. There, there is this kind of craftsmanship, which we often forget about, this human touch. Um, and every single element of those detectors is hand-built and hand-put together and hand-checked. It's quite extraordinary. So in the shutdown for the last two years, people have been hand-checking every single little trillion cable. Quite extraordinary. Another person who just jetted in was this guy. Um, as one friend said to me, what can you give the artist who has everything in the world, who doesn't need anything? The one thing he hasn't done and he hasn't encountered is CERN. 
So he came in and saw CERN, and I was teasing him, saying, you haven't built a Large Hadron Collider yet, have you? You probably know uh, he, Ansel Kiefer, has this incredible collection of buildings underground in the south of France where he tunnels and digs it with his own hands. Um, and I thought it would be incredible to have the person who is obsessed by building but also obsessed by lead and stars and I curated a visit where he encountered all the different kind of scientific impulses behind stars as well as lead, and the properties. And that got him thinking again in very, very different dimensions. Um, again, wait and see what happens with that work. But he was very inspired. Um, and at the moment, we've got a um, still uh, winning lots of prizes. Just won its 11th prize is a, a project called Supersymmetry, which is a dance film opera um, which starts off in CERN, uh, was done by a Dutch director with Lukas Timelak, um, uh, who's the uh, dancer and choreographer, as well as a very um, extraordinary soprano. It's only got four winner things there. It's now won lots of prizes, and that's extraordinary again. So what does a, pr a curator bring? And this slide has failed, so <laughs> I will just have to extemporize on this one. Uh, I think what you bring is um, design and direction. So I very much went, what does CERN have? CERN is about the missions, I've told you, the missions of knowledge, but also what it has is a beauty, which I cannot really describe, which is the beauty of the brains of the physicists who are there, who literally um, take you into different paradigms and different worlds. And for me, Embedding the program was important, and the way to do it was by mirroring the language, so collision and collide, all and accelerate all terms they understand and know. So to embed something new, you have to ha use the same language. So you're a bridge across cultures and languages, but also a bridge within the process. So when Gilles Jabin arrived, he was there for a week, and he came up to me after a week um, and went, oh, my God, I'm panicking, I can't cope. I really don't know what they're talking about when they're talking about wimpsillas. I really don't know. It's driving me nuts. And um, I said, OK, but you have something they don't have. You've got this instinct and knowledge inside your gut and your soul. So when you hear the words wimpsilla and um, jet, respond to it with your guts and your imagination. Respond to it in a different way. Because in a way, you don't almost need to understand because this program was set up deliberately where it wasn't illustrating or describing the science. It's very much about science's inspiration, about the ideas being inspirational. So, again, I was acting as a bridge with him and holding his nerve, equally with somebody like um, Julius von Bismarck. He didn't need a bridge because he was so hyper-intelligent. He went and had an argument about how to run the Large Hadron Collider, and he was really extraordinary at, ha at that. Um, uh, but he needed stimulation and surprises. Um, so I basically, every day, I didn't tell him what we were doing and how we were doing it and when we were doing it. So he had to turn up. Um, then he was like, I'd go, right, we're going to go and discover how dark energy is going to be harnessed, possibly, for the future. Uh, or we're going to go up the fast station or we're going to do something else. So again, it's about managing the creative process, but also about the interest, as well as creating the design and direction of the program. So 
as I said, it's kind of curated process and creative experience, and it's kind of interchangeable in that way. But also what you can do as curators is gain access. So how else would Bill Fontana have got access to the Large Hadron Collider and turned it into the world's largest musical instrument? So um, uh, by actually playing the sounds of uh, the particles coming out of the little source bottle where they begin their journey, and the bottle's that big, and it lasts six months, and it's full of protons, um, and we recorded the sound as they went through the first set of magnets. Um, and we took that sound and then played it back to the Large Hadron Collider itself and then also played the sound of the sea back to it using accelerometers which we attached to the LHC. So as a curator, if you win trust and understanding, then you can make these things happen. You can make these experiments happen on many different levels. It's also, I think, about, as a curator, particularly at CERN, I think it was very important to create interventions and playfulness and positioning. One artist amongst 5,500 scientists, what do you do? <laughs> and how do you make yourself felt? But also, how do you allow scientists to make sense of yourself in some way? So uh, we used to do interventions. So Julius von Bismarck, for example, kidnapped 30 scientists and held them underground with me in the dark. We, we, we asked them to volunteer, I should say. They were all volunteers. And uh, we then took them underground into the LHC, uh, below actually the main building, led them through the maze, which we had memorized in the dark for, we'd spent a whole day memorizing it. And then we sat them down in different places and then said, what do you see in your mind's eye? You, the people who think and look for the invisible. What do you see when you really can't see anything? <laughs> and that was quite an extraordinary experience. And that uh, recording, we've still not released. But we've got it. But we still haven't released it. So I think there's always this really important thing about creating surprise and within our culture, whatever, wherever you are, some form of disruption. Um, and one intervention, again, was one I did with Gilles Jobin, where he came into the CERN library, which is the hallowed space of uh, CERN, and basically three dancers, and he toppled through the CERN library dancing, saying, we are invisible in their heads, even though they weren't. And literally nobody noticed. And I was sitting there on my computer, I was sitting there going, oh. Nobody's noticing. And there were people, there were dancers hanging off the shelves, going through the shelves. And in a way, and then they were turning and twisting, for example, in front of this um, physicist who didn't notice, didn't look up. And by the time, Gilles the one in the blue and white, and by the time they toppled past, Gilles left a little note saying, hello. And that was it. And this, this shot was totally unstaged. Um, the intervention was totally unannounced. We didn't tell anybody it was happening. Um, and this went viral around the world. So, of course, it created a lot of publicity. It was in the Huffington Post and The Guardian. But I think the important thing for me as a curator is it's a meditation and a demonstration of the absolute concentration of um, physicists and the absolute concentration of artists and how they have this incredible common language, this common drive in their souls. <laughs> so, curator does that. Oh, I'm coming to the end. Okay. But I also think it's about extra dimensions and bringing the human 
into science, and that's super important. So this is um, Christoph Remser, who, listening to the sound of the power supply at CERN, I mean, you wouldn't really think the power supply would be that exciting, but for him, it was extraordinary in the sense that he w it was amplified to the point that he felt an incredible connection for it. And this is very hard-bitten scientists, just like the scientists who we um, played the sound of the protons leaving the bottle. He had guarded that bottle for years and years, and he burst into tears and said, oh, my God, I have never felt so connected. So that's just a little snapshot, tiny snapshot, and quick, very fast run-through. But you can ask me anything, but it's quite an intricate... Um, subject, which I've made rather simple. <laughs> All friends hands to thank Ariane. And we do indeed have plenty of time for questions. I will bring the mic because we're streaming this and I'd like the online audience to hear it. So does anybody have any questions? <laughs> Hi, Ariane. Hello. Nice to see you again. Um, <laughs> and that was a wonderful talk. Thank you. And you gave such a uh, great insight into how curator and artist create wonderful work in surprising circumstances. Mm. Um, I was very interested to get your take on how the scientists mm. or any public visitors responded to that work. And, mm. and I guess, did you, did you have to help them understand the value of what they were getting, or did they get it immediately? Okay, so um, the response of the audience to the work, um, or, well, the audience is multi-layered, isn't it? So it's the scientists within the organisation. Um, it's also the public from way outside. Um, and it's also the local population as well who know what CERN's about vaguely, but think of it as a cult, which is somewhere hidden outside Geneva. Um, I think, oh, so they're different structures. Oh, that's such a complex question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so I'll try and simplify it. So local audience, they came out of curiosity. And some of the tie-ins we did, for example, and still are doing, are with um, local organisations and with the actual um, collider itself. And they came because they were intrigued and interested, and it was tied in with tours also underground. Uh, so there was a definite benefit for CERN to understand, uh, for, for the public to understand what was going on. In terms of the arts audience, they don't need any explanation, so that's an easy one. <laughs> uh, for the scientists, that's an ongoing project, um, an ongoing discussion, because, um, and Andy's a scientist who's deliberately, who's, who's behind you. Um, he, there, there's, um, it's an ongoing subject, question because a lot of uh, scientists sometimes understand art as illustration and description and for throughout my five years I was endlessly having that discussion that no this piece is not meant to be describing your science it's all about inspiration about us coming together on an inspirational level um, and I had one um, scientist for example run up to me and go oh my god that artist in residence has been here for one month and he still hasn't made anything and I went yeah, but how long did it take you to build um, your experiment? And he went, 15 years. And I went, okay, well, think about that. Can I have a think about that? Um, and he went, yeah, good point. And from that moment, Bollock understood 
started a process of understanding. Um, so I would, I've always said that the CERN programme is and was and will always be a cultural change programme of understanding of different ways of making and discovering and knowing. Um, so that's, that's a kind of brief answer for that. Not all scientists. I mean, that's did the scientists find it disruptive? Uh, yeah, did they find it disruptive? They, um, yes, they. I would say some did. So, for example, we took over the whole of um, the refectory one day and turned it into a dance studio. <laughs> so that was quite disruptive in terms of disrupting their science. Um, as one scientist said to me, the great thing about working with artists is it gives us a new way of looking and we realize that artists love the details and it can be really super frustrating but for us but then we understand and suddenly think oh details are really quite interesting as well and they start incorporating the ideas of details not being so bad in terms of finding a direction that it's not always linear that you can have these mad as you know as an artist kind of circles which then somehow get you propel you over there um, and other disruptive things. I have to say, on the whole, everybody was super generous with their time because what unites them all is their passion and desire to communicate the science um, and the passion about how the universe exists. So actually, yeah, they gave time freely and with a lot of love, actually. Thank you very much for the, the speech. Um, sort of expanding on on that topic mm. um, <laughs> with respect to communicating to social networks mm -hmm. uh, to some degree, um, with on the one hand, um, you know, the world showing a lot of cultural confusion. Yeah. Um, Britain, I think, being a perfect example of that at the moment, <laughs> and at the same time. IT becoming, you know, or technology or science becoming more pervasive yep. among social classes which are not necessarily educated to understand the significance of the universe, but more look at, you know, their back garden and backyard. I think in some ways, arts and visualization and graphics, etc., could have a potentially hmm. very powerful tool, hmm. could be a powerful tool, and could also have, you know, maybe, so what I'm really, really interested in is any learnings, any tools to bridge that gap between, you know, a fairly editarian, well-educated part of society and, and potentially a less, you know, maybe a dis disenfranchised uh, social classes? I think you're totally right. Um, and, uh, yes, I think um, data and information has a great potential to um, uh, basically change the way we look at things. For example, the FT did that great... Um, diagram this morning about UK's involvement with the EU and how we're involved and it's really interesting when you look at it because then you realize that actually we're not heavily involved I and mean, so what is this discussion all actually really about well I'll leave that up to you to decide uh, but when you get data and information then combined with an artist who somehow aesthetically touches your soul as well where you have an intuitive response which is connected with feeling and touch and sight and something indescribable which takes you further. That is why, and that is how data can even drive us further. It, it can stop people being switched off 
by just going, oh my God, that's data and information or illustration of it. So that's why the arts is so critical, because it has this extra dimension which is indefinable. And it's about that. Well, you can't actually program that, can you? But it can really move people. But I don't, there's no, yeah. Any, any attempt to put that into, I mean, I, mean I, I frameworks are there to be disrupted, but any yeah. way to put that into frameworks or learnings, mm. or do you have any, any learnings for us? Because I think that should all be our goal, to, um, you know, to, to explain and to you know, avoid confusion. Yeah. So learnings from that are, hmm. thing is, you kind of know when you see something which changes the way you look at the world. Uh, you n and you know the feeling, you individually. So um, that's. But I wouldn't be afraid of emotion. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying don't... I mean, in essence, if you look at what's potentially happened <laughs> last week, that is all about human emotion. So emotion can actually change things. So if you create art which touches emotion in some way, it can change things. Yes, we've had examples in art history of things like, for example, you know, Hitler, for example, working with that great architect in a way he was framing with Albert Speer the way that society was going. And art has that potential, so of good and evil, like we do as human beings. <laughs> also, let's not forget criticality as yeah. well. You know, the Data as Culture program here is all about artists critically engaging with yeah. data and the way we share it, represent it make meaning from it. We've actually got a question from Canada online, <laughs> which is, thank you, were there CERN scientists lobbying for particular artists or to be matched with particular artists? And that's from someone called Rob Davidson. Uh, yes, of course they were, yes. Yeah, they, they, were, they were very excited about um, being matched with particular artists. And um, when, um, and still are, some of them just go, yeah, I really want to be matched with so-and-so. So yes. And, um, yeah, most definitely, yes. <laughs> Hi, Ariane. I'm Tim from Future City. Um, Hello. Just uh, thinking about your brilliant program in the, in the wider context, um, and, and I suppose I'd welcome your thoughts on how you feel the sort of general appetite, particularly in the UK, but maybe across Europe, for, for engaging amongst the general public with complex ideas around science has evolved. Because... What, hmm. what we might crudely call the Brian Cox effect hmm. has seen, uh, you know, science programs shifting from BBC uh, BBC Two to BBC One. Uh, the Welcome Collection is thriving. The hmm. New Science Gallery in London Bridge, and so on, begins to sort of suggest there's a, a kind of narrative where people are much more predisposed to um, to engage with these ideas in public fora of hmm. different kinds. And I just get welcome your thoughts on. On, on that and how you think about your program and whether that you b agree that exists and, and, and how programs such as your own should, should, should position themselves in relation to that if you do think it, it exists. Okay. I've written about that. <laughs> so I've written about that um, and I contributed to a report about that by, future, by the Future Laboratories. And I've also written about it in the art newspaper. Totally agree with you. There's a huge appetite for science at the moment uh, as we go for a quest for truth and certainty within what we have is a disruptive civilization at the moment. 
Um, so science somehow has ended up being the great place for truth. But equally at the same time, science has become much more adept at communication and has been much more open and creative in the way it communicates. So for example, the Welcome Collection, extraordinarily creative hybrid gallery, museum, event space, um, using different things. And again, using science as a point of inspiration, not only as description. It does both, actually. Um, um, so yes, those things e exist, and I totally agree with you. Um, uh, equally, arts programs are becoming more, more and more and more and more prevalent. They've always existed between arts and science. There's always been that traffic, but they're getting more and more prevalent, and that's being driven by economics as well, to be absolutely truthful. Um, as I said, my program, ha not a penny was paid by CERN. I fundraised, um, fundraised for it myself, and so on my own, um, and... Um, but equally, arts organisations or artists know that if they get attached to a science organisation, they're more likely to get funding or they get funding in the future. So there are all these different kind of nexuses colliding at the moment on that. In terms of positioning, uh, I, I always say with arts programmes, do not cookie cut. Do not cookie cut. Every single science organisation has its own, and every science has its own different ways of operating and their own missions, visions and values, um, their own ethoses. And you have to be really, you have to really think about those. Some, one science organisation might say, I want to illustrate and describe the science. That's what I want. That's fair enough. That's what they want to do. That's fine. That's a different kind of art form. Another, I mean, I was... CERN was just open to fundamental research in the process. So again, you have to be, like individuals, very different. Yeah. Are there any final questions? Well, thank you so much, Ariane. It's been wonderful, and I hope that everyone will join me in thanking you. Pleasure. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.